0: Uh, good morning. Uh, we are finishing up a series on one verse, and we've come to the end of people to preach before Randy gets back, so you're, you're stuck with me this morning, and uh, we've got a lot to get into, so I'm going to read our text. Uh, if you want to make use of the Bibles there in the chair in front of you, it's page 887. We're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 2, the wedding feast at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But his mother said to the servants, Just do whatever he tells you. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Well, if you're an astute observer this morning, you may have recognized that that's really not one verse. Um, this, this, this is indeed true. Uh, when I was asked to, to preach a while back, uh, I had been wrestling with uh, what one verse to choose. And uh, I was, uh, for various reasons, drawn to this passage. I don't know why. And uh, another possibility of Philippians 4, where Paul is talking about anxiety. And I thought, maybe, you know, maybe we need to hear a sermon on anxiety. So I needed to make a decision to get to work on this, and uh, one morning I I picked up my Bible and I just kind of flung it open on the desk, and lo and behold, the the passage that uh, we're talking about this morning came up, Um, and clearly that was a sign from God. Um, I I had no idea before that occurred that this passage was even in John, much less John 2, and so uh, I took the Holy Spirit's lead there. Uh, and decided to preach this text this morning. Uh, in general, just let me say, that's a horrible way to use your Bible, but um, in, in this particular circumstance, I think, uh, I, think that's, uh, I think it was the Holy Spirit. Although, once I made that decision and got into this text, uh, it did fill me with a great deal of anxiety, which made me think I should have actually preached on anxiety. Uh, I'll leave that up to you at the end of the morning. You can make a decision. Um, What's this story about? Why why was I drawn to this and at the same time kind of afraid to deal with it? Uh, It it certainly presents some challenges. I mean, uh, this is not an easy passage, and and some of that probably had to do with my own spiritual upbringing. Uh, Some of you here might be able to identify with this, Uh, but uh, you just didn't preach sermons on joy and alcohol, at least together. That's just not how how it's supposed to work. What was Jesus doing at a party where alcohol was being served in the first place? <laughs> how could he even supply more wine at a party where some people might have already had too much to drink? Uh, well, the answer is, or the answer I think I was told is that, well, Jesus is divine and is not tempted in ways that humans are. Plus, this is probably really prune juice, uh, and we're only human so uh, the message is uh, to avoid celebrations especially one where alcohol is being served and be careful of being too joyful. Now something didn't something just doesn't seem quite right with that interpretation though you know for some of us avoiding alcohol may be a good maybe a good rule of thumb maybe good advice. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, on the more liberal side of theology, where Jesus basically teaches the values that we already hold dear, we find, uh, we find the message of this sermon is it's just you need to take time and celebrate in your life. Now, I don't think that's really bad advice either, and it may be closer to the truth. However, I'm not so sure we need to hear that message either this morning, especially when our beloved university has just been voted the number one party school in the nation. Uh, some, you know, something deeper is going on here, and it's worth noting, uh, that I did this last hour too, I need to stop and pray before we go any further, and, and then we'll, we'll launch into this. So let's pray. Father, will you come here this morning through your spirit, and take these words and make them yours for your glory. Amen. Okay, Uh, John is the only gospel writer who decides to bring us this obscure story, the first miracle of Jesus. Unlike the other gospel writers, John is our theologian. He writes with deep theological purpose. And the whole purpose of the first half of this book is to demonstrate that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Eternal One, the Son of God. Uh, Matthew opens his gospel with Old Testament genealogy, Mark with the uh, activities of John the Baptist, Luke starts with Elizabeth and Mary. John opens his gospel by taking us outside of history altogether into the very beginning of things. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's some heavy stuff. Greek philosophers would have wholeheartedly agreed until you get down to verse 14 in chapter 1, where John says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What was unthinkable for philosophy was glory to God. And then immediately thereafter, John says we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John tells us that Jesus revealed his glory to the disciples at this wedding in some no-name town in the region of Hickville to reveal his glory. But John also adds a layer of theology and symbolism to these narratives, especially at this wedding feast. And we're going to talk just about a few of those this morning. You'll be relieved to, about, you know, to discover that about 70% of that really good stuff is just we don't have time to deal with. But the big idea is this, I think. Uh, God glorifies himself in bringing abundance from absence. He glorifies himself in bringing abundance from absence. And he did it at this particular feast. Uh, And it was prompted by what was potentially a hugely embarrassing situation. There is a pastor, uh, he's known as the Maverick, who shared uh, a story that helps kind of get us into this mindset. Uh, He's married a lot of people, and so he talked about the most memorable wedding he'd ever performed. Now, the central figure in this drama was actually not the the bride, but the mother of the bride, who uh, at the announcement of her daughter's wedding, in his words, somehow became mentally unhinged. Uh, Now she was overcome with joy, but she also pretty much overcame everyone else with her joy. Uh, Nobody knew it, but she had been waiting for a production script of absolutely epic proportions. This was going to be a royal wedding fit for a princess bride. Uh, And since it was her money, uh, it was hard to say no. No detail was left to chance or to human error. He says everything that could be engraved was engraved. There were teas and showers and dinners. Maverick said that his bride's mother would call Uh, The bride's mother would call every single week and was in his office more often than the janitor was. The clothes for the wedding party were all made and tailored and fit to order. The tuxedos included. They were not not rented, they were tailored and purchased. An 18-piece brass and wind ensemble was engaged. No one would ever forget this event. And finally, that hour came guests in formal attire, packed the church. He says enough candles were lit to bring daylight back to evening. The ensemble and the choir in the loft just, you know, gushed this great symphonic music. You know, state dinners at the White House didn't match the decorum and ceremony of this event. As the mother of the the mighty mother of the bride coasted down the aisle with ease and elegance, grace and grandeur. It was absolutely flawless. She had done it. She glowed and beamed and smiled and sighed. And the music softened as nine, nine chiffon-draped bridesmaids slowly marched down the aisle while the befrocked groom and his men marched rigidly into place. Now the bride, uh, says Maverick, had been dressed for hours, if not days. <laughs> there was no adrenaline left in her body. Left alone with her father in the reception hall of the church while the march of the maidens went on and on and on, she had walked along the tables laden with gourmet goodies and absent-mindedly sampled a few tiny mints. You know, pink one, a yellow, a green. Then she picked up uh, some nuts from the silver bowls, ate a few pecans, sampled the cheese ball, scooped up some black olives, a handful of glazed almonds, a little sausage with a frilly toothpick on it, a couple of shrimps wrapped in bacon, and a cracker piled high with liver pate. You know what's coming. She, she washed all this down with a glass of pink champagne. Her father had given it to her to, you know, help calm her nerves. Uh, but what Maverick said as he stood looking at the back of the church was not so much the whiteness of her dress, but the whiteness of her face this was not so much a bride as a live grenade with the pin pulled out. (laughs) And sure enough, she threw up right as she walked by her mother. (laughs) And Maverick says, and by threw up, I don't mean a polite little ladylike earp into her handkerchief. She puked. There's just no nice word for it. She hosed the front of the chancel, hitting two bridesmaids, the groom, a ring bearer, and me, he says. And he can confirm all these details, because it was all caught on tape, from three cameras at three separate angles. Because, after all, the mother of the bride had thought of every detail. Now, the bride went limp in her father's arms. The groom just sat down on the floor, too stunned to function. And the mother of the bride was so mortified, she passed out. Seven months of planning and preparation were undone in about 2.3 seconds. He said he witnessed a fire drill that rivaled the Marx Brothers. Groomsmen rushed about heroically, mini princess flower girls were screaming, bridesmaids sobbing, folks with weak stomachs just headed for the exits. Um, All the while the orchestra, unaware of these events, just kept playing on. The only two people smiling in the whole room were the mother of the groom and the father of the bride. (laughs) Now, they eventually got her cleaned up and did the wedding in the reception hall in order to avoid the smell of fresh vomit. And um, later on, uh, the mother was actually able to see the humor in this and very graciously hosted a 10th anniversary wedding party where they got together three television sets and watched this unpack in all of its glory, right down to the frame by frame advance. Uh, now the whole story in John believe it or not is animated by similar concerns. They were on the verge of a major embarrassment, a social catastrophe. John tells us of this problem through Mary, who is the first to recognize that the wine is gone, the wine has run out. In our culture of ready-made convenience, it may be hard to grasp the significance of this particular shortcoming. Getting new wine would have taken both too much time and too much money. Things in short supply on this particular day. This was not a problem that could be easily fixed. I mean, just to help get your minds around this, I mean, imagine you're hosting a large Thanksgiving dinner, right, for your in-laws who have always questioned your ability to cook, only to discover that the oven has been set to preheat for the last five hours as the doorbell rings. Um a nightmare that I keep having. Uh, Imagine that just before your big presentation to the boss and shareholders, you discover that your PowerPoint presentation has been corrupted by a virus and is now irretrievably lost. When you press the clicker instead of a flow chart, you see garbled text, 65 slides of nothing. Mary sees that the wine has run out and it is a major, major embarrassment for the groom and the groom's family who would have been responsible to make sure that a wedding, which could go seven days, was well uh, provisioned for. Everyone was well watered and fed. This was a huge offense. No one would look back on this wedding ten years later and laugh about running out of wine. Running out of wine at a celebration like this in a shame-based culture was especially egregious and may have actually left the groom and the groom's family open to a lawsuit from the bride's parents. And Mary is acutely aware of what's at stake, so she tells Jesus the wine has run out. But Mary is not just making an observation. Her statement implies that Jesus ought to do something about it. It's kind of like when your wife says, I'm a little chilly. Um, Somewhere in that statement, there may be a veiled request. Uh, It might really mean you need to grab a sweater that's lying next to you, or it may mean that you need to put your arm around me, or turn up the thermostat, or it's time you fixed that furnace, or that we really need to have a conversation about moving south so that she can be closer to her parents. in other words, you need to do something. And here, here, here's one big idea. God glorifies himself in bringing abundance from absence by, by answering our deepest needs, by answering our cry for help is how it should show up on, on the slide. And this point admittedly needs a little bit of unpacking. Yes, God answers our prayers, but not always, uh, not always the way we would like. In fact, Jesus' response to Mary seems almost a bit harsh, but it's really about timing. And I think this little interaction between them gives us a window into the relationship between our needs, our specific needs, and the will of God. One I think that we will find encouraging. Mary gets the force, or rather Jesus gets the force of Mary's statement, but his response is really hardly encouraging. He says, you know, woman, what does that have to do with me? Uh, The church Father Augustine could ask when looking at this passage, what is this? Did Jesus come to the marriage for the purpose of teaching men to treat their mothers with contempt? Literally in the Greek it reads, what to me and to you? There's some element of rebuke here, but that idiomatic expression in that culture stood for creating distance between two people or two parties. This exact same language is used when the demons address Jesus and his disciples on the eastern shore of Galilee. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? But his next statement clarifies the source of this rebuke. He says, My time or my hour has not yet come. And by this, John means the crucifixion. This was. Jesus' greatest hour of glory, but it was not time for that to be revealed. Mary just wants the the wedding to end without embarrassment. Jesus considers Mary's request and the response of his ministry. Mary wants the wedding to end without embarrassment. Jesus is working toward the most shameful and embarrassing event in human history. John 12, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. It's predicting his death. Jesus' agenda is significantly bigger than fixing a problem at this puny little wedding. And Mary's request appear to be in direct conflict of what Jesus is ultimately set out to do. And Jesus lets her know. Nevertheless, John makes clear that Jesus does honor her request. The servants fill the jars with water to the brim. He transforms it into wine and answers her requests. We're not even told how this happens particularly. This first miracle is very discreet. Somewhere between the servants drawing out water and bringing it to the headmaster, the change occurs. John even uses passive language to describe this. Uh, Technically, it's the perfect tense, which in Greek often describes an event that has taken place in the past, but has significance ongoing into the present. He doesn't come right out and say, Jesus turned the water into wine, but simply says the water had been turned into wine, refers to it passively. He honors Mary's request, but in a way that doesn't compromise his own purpose. And I think that ought to bring us some encouragement this morning. For this story basically tells us that God is big enough to accommodate our requests even when they may not be fully aligned with his will. I think many times we get hung up on whether or not our prayers match up with God's specific will in our lives. As if God has planned out every last detail and event. It's that that, that one question that, that keeps, you know, Coming up, does God, I'm asked this a lot, does God have one particular person in mind for you as a spouse? And that goes right to the heart of the question of God's will. And I know my wife and I disagree on this, but when people ask me that, I typically say, yes, but you've not married that person. Honor your commitments. Um, You know, life is complicated. Anyway, this story challenges our assumptions. If God won't suffer his plans to be held hostage to our requests, neither does he turn away from meeting real human needs that may or may not be aligned with his purposes. And I think we see God's gracious, divine condescension. He turns our requests into his glory, even when these requests may be at the outermost periphery of his will. God glorifies himself by answering our cries for help. Secondly, God glorifies himself by engendering or evoking faith in us. John makes it really clear that he wrote this in verse 11 to to, to be a record of Jesus' power and authority so that others might indeed put their faith in him. Uh, This miracle is the first of several that are recorded in the book of John, like the first 11 chapters, demonstrating that Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus is divine but human at the same time. Scholars often refer to these 11 chapters as the book of signs that culminate with Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the dead. But chapter 12 changes directions as Jesus is anointed at Bethany and begins to predict his own death, which he again describes as the hour of his glory. But we should pause here to reflect, I think, on Mary, who is front and center in this story. Protestants tend to downplay Mary's interaction with Jesus here. On the other hand, uh, Roman Catholic theology typically sees verse 4 here as the foundation of their doctrine of Mariology, where Mary becomes an intercessor between us and Christ. Without having to, to really go down that road, we should note that Mary's faith in her son is impressive. We have no reason to believe that this really is Jesus' first miracle. Mary has not seen Jesus perform any miracles to this point. There's little reason to believe that she's expecting a miracle now. She's likely just aware of Jesus' resourcefulness. She's likely relying on who she knows Jesus is and his character. Now, on other levels, it seems like only a mom could do this. I mean, she's just heard Jesus' reply, which at first glance kind of sounds like a no, but she doesn't give up. In fact, I love, I can just, I can picture this in my mind. After Jesus kind of gently rebukes her, I could just see her without missing a beat, turning to the servants and just saying, just do whatever he tells you. Just do whatever he says. Mary's persistence in the face of Jesus' apparent unwillingness is illuminated by similar examples in the New Testament. The Syrophoenician woman who would asked Jesus to heal her daughter, but was rebuffed by Jesus, yet kept asking, even uh, as a dog might eat crumbs from the table, and she was rewarded for that faith. And one scholar notes, this kind of persistence always seems to win Jesus over to acting. But this is not manipulating. Mary is merely placing her trust in Jesus' abilities. When she tells the servant to do whatever Jesus tells them, she reveals a simple faith in Jesus to fix the situation without placing any further constraints on how or when it will occur. She's perfectly content to leave the matter in Jesus' hands and is rewarded for that. Jesus is worthy of a do-whatever kind of faith. And once again, I think we have a tendency to go to one of two extremes where we offer up vague prayers for blessings, acknowledging, you know, if this be your will, God, or we pray so specifically that it becomes a subtle demand for God to answer in one particular way, you know, the way that we know best. But a do-whatever kind of faith is neither plagued by these kind of general requests nor tries to force God's hand. This kind of faith can actually only come from God. God glorified himself in bringing abundance out of absence, but in a way that only a few could see. The disciples saw it and put their faith in Jesus. And by bringing abundance from absence, Jesus engendered faith in his disciples. And God glories in giving signs to strengthen our faith as well. There are times in my life when I have to remember, specifically, moments like those, like water to wine moments. I mean, years and years ago, um, when I was working as an engineer in Chicago, but uh, knew that I needed to go back and uh, get another degree, I just quit my job and was uh, moving to Iowa State University in Ames. I didn't know a soul there. Uh, and as a 23-year-old freshman for the second time, I really didn't want to uh, to be stuck in a dorm room with an uh, an 18-year-old who had a penchant for partying. Um, all the doors and avenues had closed. I just hung up the phone with the last lead I had, and I kind of um, very cynically said, "Okay, God, now what?" You know, I'm I'm uh, I quit my job. I I know I'm supposed to be doing this but um, you know, I need a little help here. Uh, it was not a faith-inspired prayer, let me say that, or uh, uh, point, but I, you know, I was just in the middle of that complaint when uh, the phone rang, and it turns out that uh, my, grand, my grandmother's hairdresser knew a pastor at the university who knew of another pastor in town whose son was rooming with another person in need of an additional roommate, preferably someone who didn't party as much as the former roommate, and they were looking for someone. Um, God showed up in that moment, and it worked out wonderfully. It was, it was a time of abundance. You know, God that did that in even greater ways in getting us to Scotland. Um, these little signs engender faith in God, the kind of faith that can be sustained when there are no signs from God. That's when faith, by the way, really has to do its work. I think the church father Augustine put it best when he preached this passage about 1,600 years ago when he said this, Let us knock that he may open to us and fill us with the invisible wine. For we were water and he made us wine. He made us wise for he gave us the wisdom of his faith. This kind of faith comes from God. Finally, God glorifies himself in bringing abundance from absence by astonishing the world. When God shows up, it gets attention. The master of ceremonies had absolutely no clue where this wine had come from, but he knew good wine when he tasted it. When he calls the groom over to declare that he had saved the best until now, we find a statement that has multiple layers of significance. Most scholars say that John is doing a couple things here but he's he's getting at a deeper theological point showing how the coming of the Messiah is ushering in a new order that replaces the old. This becomes a little bit clearer when we consider the six stone jars which John tells us were used for ceremonial purification. Now no Jew would have needed that explanation but John provides it for a broader audience. Uh, No Jew would have missed the fact that these were needed um, for any kind of party, for ceremonial cleansing. They would also know that it had to be made of stone, because unlike pottery, which could become defiled, stone vessels were considered clean. They would have also understood that all of the guests would have had servants pour pour, pour the water over their hands as a symbol of being clean before eating. The Pharisees would go on to criticize Jesus and his disciples for failing to observe precisely these customs before they ate. And when Jesus tells the servants to fill the water, the jars with water, he's alluding to these older laws and custom which will come to an end. John says the servants fill it to the brim. That is, there's a sense that the old has been fulfilled. The fact that there's six jars may have some significance, too, since seven is the number of perfection. The old is inadequate, but the new has come. And the wine kind of speaks symbolically of this new order. It's not only a symbol of joy, but it is a symbol of the messianic age. In fact, the Old Testament, when it talks about Zion or the Messiah coming and the new order being established, almost always alludes to abundant wine. Uh, The prophet Amos says, The time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who plows shall overtake the one who reaps, and the treader of grapes the one who sows the seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, and they shall rebuild their ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. There's an apocryphal work from the second century that's a gloss on some of these Old Testament passages. Second Baruch uh, actually says that when the Messiah returns, each vine will have a thousand branches, each branch a thousand clusters, each cluster a thousand grapes, and each grape about 120 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. But at this particular feast, by producing probably between 120 and 150 gallons, Jesus' sign speaks of this new era of abundance. But it's not just about the quantity, it's also the quality. This is what gets the headmaster's attention. It's not only exceptionally good, but the timing is significant. The head steward tells the groom, you've saved the best for last. This is just completely backwards. You're supposed to serve the good stuff at the beginning of a party, right? When people's tastes are still discerning. You save the cheap stuff for last, after they've had too much to drink. You start with the refined, you know, well-aged Cabernet. And then you switch over to the Charles Shaw, or two-buck Chuck. This steward knew how the world works. But our modern, hyperproductive, consumer-driven economy bent on maximizing profits and gaining market share has transformed this headmaster's observation into a principle with ruthless efficiency. The world's economy knows nothing of God's economy, which is one of abundance. Uh, a while back, uh, I needed to get a new Backpack because uh, both zippers broke on on the one I had before uh, my brother-in-law actually uh, Had had a series of these promotional backpacks and you know he worked for a uh, Consulting company and these were really really high-end nice backpacks um, But uh, both zippers broke and so I needed to get a new one. So I went online and just you know ordered one um, same model number same type same price, same everything, just three years later. But when I got the backpack, I noticed that my laptop, I had to, had to kind of wedge it into uh, the, the, the place where it's supposed to go. And in the one I had before, it fit freely. Um, they had made the backpack just a tinge smaller. You know, so I, I know this because I actually measured. Um, I have it right here. Well, here, let me just... I've, I've covered the label to. Uh, I normally don't use props in sermon, but I've coupled the label, covered the label to show you, or to actually protect the guilty. But this this backpack is just marginally marginally smaller than the backpack I originally had, but at the same price. I mean, someone at this company got a promotion over this. Um, the world's economy operates on laws of supply and demand, and scarcity, and the marginal propensity to consume we are cajoled and bombarded with manipulative advertising at every turn, all in the name of profit. Some of you may have observed that there are gas stations now in town that will display a price of a gallon of gas with 10 cents lower than it normally costs, only to discover that that only get that price if, indeed, you buy a car wash. And it's always the lowest price at the top. Every time I see that, it really hacks me off. I become a little more cynical and I say, I will not buy gasoline from your gas station. This kind of world economy can have a withering effect on our souls, however. By continually over-promising and under-delivering, the world's economy may indeed indeed leave some of us rich in resources, uh, but it can leave us hollow on the inside. It can leave us empty. Maybe some of you are like that this morning, like the host of the wedding. You're empty when it comes to your finances. We We know what that's like. But there are other forms of emptiness you may be dealing with too. In our technological age of abundance, we might find ourselves spiritually or emotionally empty. Maybe we're running out of faith. Maybe we're having a hard time conjuring up compassion for the poor or the weak, and we just don't have the moral currency needed to show mercy to those who are in distress. Some of us may be up against uh, physiological emptiness in the form of a lingering sickness or chronic illness. There's also relational emptiness with your spouse or a co-worker, even with your church. Some of you might feel trapped vocationally. You know, life hasn't quite turned out the way you've expected. And you've kind of been ground down. You're out of gas. It takes all the energy you can to muster, uh, to get up and drag yourself into work. Out of resources, out of time, out of friends, out of health, out of meaning, out of love. Empty. On some level, I suspect that we all need to hear the story of this wedding at Cana from time to time. Not because we necessarily need a miracle, though some of us might, but because this wedding story reveals the reality of God's economy. The world says you get what you pay for. God's economy says you get what you don't deserve and couldn't possibly pay for. This story exposes the world's economy as illusory and transitory. It opens us up to reality. The world's economy can make no sense of a miracle like this, and it throws everything we know out of kilter. This story reminds us that God's economy is one of absolute and unequivocal abundance, and it's an economy that gets the world's attention. So maybe the one practical thing that might be said this morning has to do uh, with those of us who are battling emptiness is simply to keep doing what you're doing, even when it's a struggle, knowing that God can make abundance out of absence and make the empty full again. Keep filling the water jars and let God transform it into wine. Let God transform the mundane into the magnificent. This may sound a bit like a self-help gospel. You know, God helps those who help themselves. And I would say just really briefly two things there. First, God's economy of abundance in the Christian life is often accompanied by great material need and hardship and stress and anxiety and doubt Just look at the Apostle Paul and his description of his life. We should not confuse God's abundance with material prosperity. Secondly, and finally, and more significantly, God's economy of abundance has also entailed the deepest emptiness possible. God's economy of abundance has room for vast chasms of emptiness. When God sent his son into the world as a suffering servant in the person of Jesus Christ, Paul describes this event as Christ emptying himself. In in urging uh, the Philippians to model an attitude of humility, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In Jesus of Nazareth, we find God emptying himself. Not through subtraction, but through addition. He didn't empty himself by setting aside any of his divine attributes, but he took on fallen human nature in all of its ugliness and depravity and emptiness into the core of his very being. In Jesus Christ, we see God acting most clearly in the backwaters of Galilee at a no-name wedding. And the only reason that God is able to bring abundance out of emptiness is because God became empty in Jesus of Nazareth without for a moment ceasing to be divine. In Jesus Christ, God has come all the way down to us in order to fill us up. No one knows more about emptiness or abandonment than Jesus. And so maybe this morning we need to be reminded that God uses empty vessels for his glory. Uh, He brings abundance out of absence. And he revealed just enough of his glory to the disciples that they could put their trust in him for the world to see to the astonishment of humankind. Because of this, Jesus says, give me the loser, the outcast, the divorced, the cynic, the rebel, the angry, the broken, the bitter, the addict, the quitter, the homosexual, the simple-minded, the self-righteous, and I will change the world. That is God's economy of abundance. Let's pray.